Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. OpenAI's release of ChatGPT late last year touched off a global race among developers. Work that had been quietly proceeding in labs around the world suddenly went public. One immediate result was seemingly endless practical applications across wide ranges of human activity. Another was even more speculation about the future. What can't AI do became the question. The answer seems to be anything a human can do, AI can do better. Because of that perception, right or wrong, the only thing growing faster than AI's capability is hysteria about AI's capability. Suddenly, industry leaders are warning about the risk of extinction from AI and actually asking to be regulated. Needless to say, governments love that question and are trying to figure out where to start and how to start. But can artificial intelligence be regulated? Can what happens in thousands of labs worldwide who have access to unlimited computing power and open source code actually be controlled? If so, how and by whom? In a world where almost everything is being weaponized by someone, will artificial intelligence be the exception? There are certainly more questions than answers. In a sense, Rebecca Finlay's job is to come up with answers that help shape what's coming at us. She is CEO of the Partnership on AI, whose stakeholders include many of the biggest players in the industry and in academia. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Helen. It's great to be here. We'll find out about that in a minute, because I hope to learn a lot from this. But let's start with this. When, when Microsoft released its version of AI-enhanced, in their case, Bing, uh, Satya Nadella said, quote, a race starts today in terms of what you can expect, unquote. How is it possible to protect the public interest in a race that may be the fastest ever run, has already started, has no rules and no referees. I I have to tell you that I always am uncomfortable when we use the analogy of a race when we think of the development of artificial intelligence. And that will be no surprise uh, to you because the partnership on AI is really about thinking thoughtfully and carefully and responsibly about how we deploy artificial intelligence to benefit people and society. And I think you can't uh, begin with thinking about race without thinking about an arms race. And I also am deeply uncomfortable about the analogy to an arms race because uh, AI, in my mind, is not good and AI is not inherently bad. Uh, But it's also important that we know that AI is therefore not neutral. It is a technology that is developed based on human choices that respond to market conditions that reside within political systems and structures. So it doesn't exist outside of the conditions that we place upon it or the creativity that we instill within it. Uh, And therefore, we can choose, we can make choices 
about how we use it and how we develop it and how we deploy it. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those choices over the next little while. Maybe we should back up and start with a definition. Artificial intelligence, some argue, is about replacing or augmenting humans' cognitive power. That would make it fundamentally different from any technology we've seen in the long history of civilization and technology, which is part of the reason why there are so many questions around, what's it mean? Where's it going? Who should protect us? And there's all sorts of terms, generative artificial intelligence, large language models, aggregative general intelligence. We don't have time to explain all those. We need hours and weeks and months. Uh, it's a huge space. So when we, the shorthand artificial intelligence, would you accept that very simplistic definition? It is technology that could replace or augment, maybe it should be the other way around, augment or replace humans' cognitive power. What I like about that definition is that it defines artificial intelligence in the context of human intelligence and capabilities. So I do like that piece of the definition. When I talk about artificial intelligence, I say that it's a suite of a variety of different technologies and approaches that have evolved over decades of computer science research. And the one that gets the most attention these days is what is called machine learning, which then evolved into deep learning or reinforcement learning. And what's unique about those systems is that they are not rules-based in the traditional sort of rules-based artificial intelligence pros. They're trained on data. So these are systems that are um, algorithms and statistical methodologies which are trained on top of data that allows them to be uh, very capable of making uh, predictions depending on what they are optimized to do. So when we think about artificial intelligence, we need to think about it um, not as a generally capable intelligence, but as a system that has been developed and deployed to optimize in a certain way. And when we think about generative AI, this new form of what we're seeing uh, with the development of these enhanced large language models that are trained on these vast, vast amounts of data, is that they are very, very good at replicating discourse approaches and narrative methodologies, or in fact, uh, creativity and design. And so that's why in chat GPT, for example, you have lots of examples of people saying, give me a poem that is written in the style of Walt Whitman that does the following things. You know, that's where it has been trained to be super capable and super able to um, optimize with regard to its performance. So when I think about artificial intelligence, I really try to sort of get under the language of intelligence and get into this notion of what is it that these systems are actually uh, create, how are they created and what are they created to do. And I think it's also important to note that um, there are systems that are interacting with humans, exactly as you said off of the beginning. And therefore, we as humans imbue these systems and trust these systems in all sorts of interesting ways. 
And there's a whole area of research around human AI collaboration, which I think is so important, which is better understanding how we are already, how we interact best with these systems and how they can be developed to, in fact, as you note, augment uh, human intelligence and capability and replace some of the tasks that we may currently be doing, which are better deployed to these systems. I want to talk to you about something Gregory Hinton said recently that I can't figure out if it just terrifies me or I don't understand it, but I'll come to that in a second. I want to use sort of a trivial example. We all heard recently that Paul McCartney made this announcement. There's going to be a new Beatles song because they had a 10 second clip of John Lennon uh, working on a song and they could, using artificial intelligence, create an entire song. And the world cheers because, oh my God, a new Beatles song. And I cheer too. Almost the very same day, the U.S. security firm, online security firm, McPhee Labs, published a paper how scammers are using three-second bits of audio to conjure conversation aimed at persuading people or their loved ones had been kidnapped. So we had a perfect tiny little example of, wow, a Beatles song, and oh my God, my kid's been kidnapped. Running off the same technology, you already made the point that it's neither good nor bad, but it does have that kind of incredible power. And even the Beatles question has all sorts of really interesting questions around it. Maybe John didn't want that song ever to exist. It's not silly, but it is silly compared to some of what's at stake. How, how, do, you, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, and I think this is exactly the challenge that's been in, in front of the artificial intelligence field around this notion of dual use, that in fact, you could create a system to hone in on John Lennon's, you know, um, vocal intonations um, and use those to develop songs and narratives and, and be fairly low risk as long as we attend to the copyright uh, and creative ownership um, challenges that may be part of, of that particular question, which I think is where is where you're going with regard to the Beatles, the Beatles example. The um, uh, but then it also has the capability to replicate and be used by malicious actors in terms of um, disinformation and also malicious uses of you know deep fakes. Um, that's certainly one of the concerns that I have around the current technology. And so the question I think that is in front of all of us, whether you're a responsible actor in industry, in civil society, or in policy, is how do you allow for the creative, positive, and beneficial uses of artificial intelligence and protect against the malicious and harmful uses of artificial intelligence? And that is not a trivial question um, by, any, uh, by any degree. Uh, and something that, as you noted at the beginning, is certainly part of the debate in the policy circles right now. But even more so, um, it's an active debate in civil society uh, and in the uh, indus industry and private sector side of the world as well. Because, you know, the belief being that um, community standards and collective norms can get underway and get instilled into social change and social practice, that's certainly one of the things that we believe at the Partnership on AI uh, in anticipation of the longer term approaches that will come out of policymakers as well. And just on the Beatles question, there's a whole, uh, I expect we're going to see a whole set of case law emerging around 
these generative AI models and the question of whether design and creativity is copyrightable or and to what extent. We just saw the uh, Supreme Court decision with regard to the Andy Warhol part. Um, and uh, so I think these are all open questions that are going to get uh, resolved through case law over the next um, several years. The Beatles versus McAfee Labs kind of issue is the very traditional way of looking at technology as a tool. Good users, bad users. That's true of atomic energy. It's true of nitrogen. It's true of every technology that's ever been invented. There's always been some great uses and good guys using it and some horrible uses and bad uses. My question on AI, and this is where I get really confused, goes to something that Gregory Hinton, just after he left Google, uh, the godfather of AI for those who are out there listening, argues that as AI progresses, it will develop sub-goals to work more efficiently in achieving its main goal. But these sub-goals won't necessarily align with human objectives. At that point, he says, Batten down the hatches. He worries that this makes humans vulnerable. In effect, I think he's saying that AI becomes self-generative, not just codes itself, but literally self-generative, assigning itself its own tasks. How should we think about that? Because it isn't AI today. AI today is interesting, not going to kill us all. He's worrying about this future where it, <laughs> that's where the existential risk begins to pop up. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, um, uh, I had the honor of working with um, Jeffrey Hinton when he was uh, a CIFAR uh, director for a program uh, where I, when I was uh, working uh, at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, um, I have seen his leadership from very early days. Uh, at the University of Toronto and all of the amazing things that he has done. And I think he is um, a creative and ingenious and uh, profound thinker in the space. And I would not in any way um, take on uh, or challenge his concerns. Having said that, I am not <laughs> Jeffrey Hinton. And so I find it very hard to operate in the space of hypothetical future challenges. And so I am a firm believer that we need to attend to those. And we need uh, individuals like Jeff speaking out very, very loudly and very clearly about potential uh, future risks and concerns. And we need to be continuing to do thoughtful uh, and open research on those challenges and think about what the potential harms could be. And at the same time, one of the best ways to sort of prepare for the future is to be attentive to the issues in front of us today. So if we are laying the foundations for responsible practices across the application of AI into healthcare, for example, or into challenges of um, energy production and environmental management, uh, I think those are all ways in which today we can be thinking about, okay, let's um, make sure that we're doing this re as responsibly and as safely as possible. And let's make sure that we at the same time are attending uh, to the future risk as well. I'll tell you a little bit about one of the initiatives that we've been working on over the last six months, which is really pulling together a community across industry, the large AI labs, as well as 
with the uh, academia and civil society to try to think, what are those safety protocols that are fit for purpose today with regard to these large-scale AI models um, and also can evolve over time for future risk? Uh, and we bring a diversity of perspectives around that work. I happen to believe that the most important breakthroughs happen when you sit on the edges of and between disciplines and sectors. Um, we bring together a group to focus on that with the goal of sort of trying to bridge the gap in some way between current issues, current concerns, and positioning for future long-term risks. Um, and you have to think about not only what are the protocols of what is it does it mean to deploy these systems safely, but then what are the governance systems and governance structures that need to be put around those protocols in order to manage them over time? That's exactly where I want to go. But let's keep Hinton's concern about some future where Hal actually just says, can't do that, Hal. I can't do that. Um, as something you want to build a regulatory system to prevent ever from happening. So presumably that is, we know nobody wants that. So what you're doing now should somehow build not just protocols, but, but cultures, to use a word, that would never let that happen. So to, that's my first assumption. My second assumption, though, and this is, I got to get one other great from the industry out of the way here, and I'm, I'm putting you in an awkward position, so I apologize. So Eric Schmidt recently said that th there's no one in the American government capable of AI oversight. It's too technical. It's too complicated. It's evolving too fast. Self-regulation is what, what the industry ought to do. Um, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but there's two questions. Is government, and in this case, at the moment, we're talking about North America and maybe Europe. So let's, let's stay in the West, West space for a second, because I want to make this global in, in a couple minutes. Is government in general smart enough to regulate this stuff? And secondly, medical doctors swear a Hippocratic oath. Could something like that for AI engineers really make, it could be done, but would it really make a difference in, in terms of not developing, I, I go back to Hinton, not doing things that would in fact do harm, as God knows what he described would do harm. I, I love that you're going there and that you brought up the word culture and thinking about um, what is required in long-term research around artificial intelligence and this notion of a Hippocratic Oath. Because one of the areas that I personally believe is profoundly important is thinking about how uh, right at that early stage of research, if we think about this as a value chain of research through to design, development, and deployment, and then monitoring and use moving forward, how do we, If I personally believe that if we do not instill a culture of uh, self-regulation and anticipatory risk assessment uh, at the research stage of artificial intelligence, we're, it's, we're not going to be able to get it in all the other stages. And there was a very good report that was released last year by the National Academies of Sciences in the U.S. Uh, called Responsible Computing Research. And I thought it laid out very clearly uh, a call to action for the computer science and computer research community to attend to, at the very early stage of that ethical 
questioning and ethical review of the research. What are the potential uh, social impacts and social harms related to that work? We released a report on this with the responsible publication norms uh, about 18 months ago. And was I was really happy to see it get picked up in nature, machine intelligence. And I just feel this is an area of work that we all need to be attending to. So I'm, I don't often get an opportunity to talk about it. So I'm really happy that, that you brought it up because I think it's crucially important. The second part of your question, which relates to the capacity for policymakers to regulate in this space, um, I feel very strongly that you have an ecosystem of regulatory responses all the way from self-regulation and responsible, uh, so responsible research and self-regulation all the way through to regulatory responses in government as well. And that, you know, you often see a leg in terms of good, smart, innovative public policy being put into place while government and policymakers get up to speed with regard to technological change. Um, but I do believe it happens, and I think it can be done very, very well. And one of the areas, you know, that's just sort of, to me, the foundation with regard to regulatory response is good, strong privacy um, legislation being put into place, because that's sort of the foundation upon which so much of the protections and that are required with regard to artificial intelligence moving forward, and then... Um, uh, and and then protections for for society and individuals as well. And I also feel that when you get into that self-regulation versus regulation debate, you end up focusing on the two extremes of hard law and no law. And to me, when we think about regulation, there's a whole spectrum of ways in which public policymakers can be intervening and interacting together with responses. Um, that are non-governmental in nature in order to create a healthy ecosystem. So we really need to widen the aperture as we think about that. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. I want to get to the global point in a second, but first, I'm glad you mentioned social media because clearly the way social media has been regulated, I use huge quotes on that word in the United States, is widely viewed as a failure. I can't sit in a policy meeting on almost any subject and not hear the root cause of the problem is social media. Now, that's an exaggeration, but nonetheless, I, I know no one who's defending other than people who make money off it how social media in the U.S. in particular, Europe has tried to do something quite different more recently, but I'm not sure the impact is as profound as they like to tell us it is. But I would argue social media regulation is the case in point that scares the hell out of me when it comes to thinking exactly about regulating in this space. Um, the authorities were more or less and continue to be more or less absent for all sorts of reasons, including an go back to Schmidt, maybe they don't get it or they didn't get it for so long that by then, you know, cow out of the barn or horse or whatever the hell animal left the barn had left the barn. If you accept that they were mistakes, what are the mistakes of how the U.S. didn't regulate social media 
that maybe can change how we begin thinking about this space? Well, I think there's there's two pieces of um, foundational regulation that most markets have in place um, that would allow for additional protection in the U.S. And so one of them is, as I mentioned, good, solid federal privacy uh, legislation. So really clear um, uh, legislation that requires all actors, um, including social media companies, um, to have clear terms of reference, clear consent, um, and uh, and an incumbent requirement to um, to protect people's privacy first. So I think privacy is is one of those areas. And then the other really clear area that many jurisdictions and the UK's uh, done some work in this regard is really thinking about children. Because when we think about social media uh, and social media harms, often the conversation is about the mental health and mental health of teenagers and adolescents. And so, um, you know, thinking about what additional protections need to be in place for children. Um, and all the ways in which that could be done, both in terms of regulation, but also in terms of other forms of self-regulation and disclosure. So from the social media perspective, those two core pieces, uh, which we've seen enacted in many uh, jurisdictions globally, are two elements that could really uh, assist in terms of providing a foundation uh, for protections uh, with regard to social media more broadly. Having said that, I think that there is um, uh, accountability for the um, for the platforms themselves with regard to how they develop and deploy uh, social media. And some of the work that we've been doing has been focusing specifically on generative media. So that's audio, visual, um, video, um, and others. And how do you disclose the use of that? How do you manage um, manage the malicious use of that, particularly in uh, high-risk geopolitical settings? Um, and, uh, and what level of accountability do you provide externally with regard to how you're taking that on? We've seen some really interesting human rights reviews of the social media platforms in different settings and some commitments with regard to that, uh, whether it's through things like um, the meta oversight board, right, that's been put into place as a way to have some form of external scrutiny and accountability. Um, we have other uh, companies who have put in place external advisory uh, review committees. Um, we have the Ether board at Microsoft and elsewhere. So I do think some of these pieces are critically important uh, in terms of managing both on the social media side of things, but also in terms of AI more generally moving forward. Although to the point we have, and it's not our conversation for today, the Twitter counterexample, somebody buys it, he decides I'm not going to do it that way, I don't want that board, and boom, it's gone. So that's the problem with self-regulation is when the self changes, so too does the regulation. But I want to talk just a bit, and you've touched on already, how AI might be regulated. On the one hand, humans make the decisions up to a point about the construction and operation of AI models. So presumably they, the humans, can be, they could be regulated or licensed or restricted or something. Uh, although how you do that globally is a different issue. I still want to get to global, so I keep on saying that. Uh, but then you have the problem that, it, I go back to Hinton, and even short of that, we know AI codes itself. 
So at what point does the human that started the coding lose responsibility for what his children code themselves, his, his AI children? So I, unanswerable questions, it, it's a muddle of a question because I'm muddled. I don't know how to think about the how problem. How should I think about how? I think you're asking the right questions, and I think these are the questions that are in front of, uh, you know, the, of the many, you know, individuals and citizens, but also in, in front of the in front of the global community. So there's been a couple of different approaches to thinking about regulation, and one of them that uh, has gained much momentum and even more with the vote last week in the European Parliament to advance the EU AI Act to the next level of trilogue deliberations with regard to the uh, EU AI Act is to think about it as a framework of risk. So in the EU AI Act, you have varying degrees of risk and depending upon the level of risk of the system that is being deployed, it has a different level of accountability and oversight. And I think there's something quite compelling about that. It might not meet all use cases, and it may not meet all certain sectors um, in which AI is deployed. But it, I think it is a useful way of thinking about how do you define risk and how do you define how a system is working in terms of an application related to that risk. And so there are types that are that are banned completely, um, and then there are some that are incredibly low risk because there's very little human data or potential for discrimination or bias. If I may interrupt, how do you? But that's precisely my question. How do you ban the creativity of some engineer somewhere doing coding in his basement? To take the extreme case, how, how do you enforce that kind of ban? There has to be enforcement mechanisms with regard to that, to whatever ban is put into place. And so uh, you clearly have to have, there, you will have enforcement mechanisms with regard to malicious actors who might be putting the, the technology out. Um, and then, you know, the vast majority of actors in the space are those who want to deploy their products and services into commercial markets and systems. So, so we'll be regulated therein. But yes, I hear what you're saying. There's always the concern that there could be, um, uh, there could be a malicious actor who is trying and attempting to do something beyond the framework that's provided. Um, so I think that's, that's one way to think about it with regard to your question about, you know, uh, should, you know, someone pick up a system and deploy it, and then it eventually moves forward. And how do you assess accountability? I think, you know, I always just go back to the very simple understanding that we have institutions and structures uh, and legal um, uh, frameworks that are based on uh, decisions that are made by individuals and organizations that then hold liability and accountability for what they're doing. So, uh, we could find ourselves potentially in the future in a, in a space whereby something gets developed that there is no human attribution for. But right now, we have systems and structures in place. We can assign accountability. So that malicious actor who does that can be found and, um, and the, the regulations can be enforced. Um, so for now, 
we need to think about who owns the system, who markets the system, uh, how is who is taking the system and using it for an application which is malicious, and ensuring that our legal uh, systems and structures are in place to to act when necessary. I have enough questions to talk for hours, but I won't do that. Instead, I will go global. You've used the word we a lot, and it's one of my least favorite words available because I never know who we is. Um, and as, as a Westerner, I'm willing to grant that we in the U.S., in Canada, as you are in Europe, um, have overlapping values, if not quite fully the same. We have overlapping approaches to things. We think in many ways in similar fashion about, about these issues. Uh, but if the Ukrainian war has taught us anything, uh, the rest of the world is not necessarily share all of those all those values. They look at some of the exact same issues really quite differently. Um, and if anything is global, it's AI creativity. Uh, we know countries like China, like Israel, like Singapore, the list goes on and on of where there are a lot of really powerful scientists and engineers in government and not in government working on these issues. And they aren't necessarily part of the we that you and I have used several times during this podcast. So I can put this question one of two ways. I could put it the impolite way, which said, come on, as long as that's true, is it really possible to have to regulate AI since you're only regulating one piece, an important piece, but not necessarily in the future, the most important piece, or put it differently, is there a way to get to a common understanding if so, how, where, who, uh, how do you do that? Because it's currently not happening in the public sector. How do you get that common understanding about the future of AI and how we define globally in this case, ought to manage that challenge? Yeah, that, that I think is- It's a yes, no question. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is, I think, one of the most profound questions, uh, certainly for me. I lead an organization that has over 100 partners in 16 countries, but the vast majority of those partners are based in the West. And so I often use the word we because I work in community and in partnership with um, with this really extraordinary group of individuals and organizations that, that come together to do this work. But I appreciate the uh, my own bias um, when I use that word and thinking um, more globally. And um, I had the opportunity uh, just last week to be in Oslo for the Oslo Peace Forum, which was a fascinating insight into many conflict settings globally, um, many representatives there um, from the UN and from Africa and from uh, organizations and entities active in conflict settings working towards uh, peace mediation and really hearing some of the concerns that they had about the way in which uh, misinformation and disinformation were being deployed um, and uh, in those in those environments and the urgency and pressures they're in. And uh, I just couldn't say more clearly that we have to be thinking constantly about how we cross those divides, how we hear and center those perspectives in the work that we're doing, and how we set agendas and priorities based on um, a much more global understanding. 
uh, of the imperatives with regard to responsibility. And, you know, there's really interesting areas of work that are happening around trade and interoperability of standards and development. And this is a crossing all borders, um, whether it's the work happening through the UN or through UNESCO or the G20, uh, a little bit also uh, announced this year through the G7. I'm a firm believer, all of those, we need to be deploying all of those measures to continue to be exploring where we can take action. And when I say we, I mean we much more globally, um, where there is consensus and how we put some of those rules of the road, right? Those guardrails into place that will allow for these systems to be deployed. And, you know, and at the same time realize, yes, there are very, very different perspectives and very, very different uh, constraints um, on the way in which this technology is being is being deployed globally. So some of the work that we do is just to really find where are those organizations that want to come together and intentionally construct and work with this. And, and that's, that is the, that is my most important uh, mission right now is thinking about how, um, how the partnership on AI can truly stimulate and catalyze and mobilize some of those conversations, which are so crucial. Let's leave it there. And I'll make an offer. The Telberg Foundation would be delighted to work with you on those conversations, because I can't imagine anything more critical, including climate, by the way, to my grandkids. Uh, These are issues we need to come to grips with. So Rebecca Finley, CEO of the Partnership on AI, thank you very much for this conversation. You've now become the official advisor to the Telberg Foundation on Artificial Intelligence. (laughs) Let me be the first to congratulate you. (laughs) I am honored. Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, Alan. Thank you. Buenissimo. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>